Greetings and good tidings to you, my fellow literary traveler, and welcome to Science Factual Presents The Book Report with Noah Linsk. Prepare yourself for knowledge so profound it can only be bound within a book. Everybody settle down and get your book reports out. Welcome to Chapter 1 of The Book Report. I'm Reese Hendrick, host of Science Factual. That's another podcast where I review science fiction movies, television, and graphic novels, and interview comedians from the Pacific Northwest and beyond. I'm excited to introduce this supporting series with co-host Noah Linsk, where we cover classic science fiction novels and their authors with monthly editions available for listening on Spotify and Mixcloud. For this inaugural episode, Noah suggested we read Slaughterhouse-Five by Kurt Vonnegut. This iconic anti-war piece may not seem like sci-fi at first, but after a read and deep dive with Noah, I definitely place this in the sci-fi category. Alright, so here are a few facts about author Kurt Vonnegut as well as the novel itself before we slip through time and space into a boxcar ride with Noah. Kurt Vonnegut Jr. was an American writer known for his satirical and darkly humorous novels. In a career spanning over 50 years, he published 14 novels, three short story collections, five plays, and five nonfiction works, with further collections being published posthumously. His death occurred in 2007, when he was only 84 years fun. Because Vonnegut was flunking his classes at Cornell, he decided to drop out and join the army to fight in World War II. During the Battle of the Bulge in 1944, German forces captured him, along with other American prisoners of war, in Dresden. Forced to work long hours in a malt syrup factory, he slept in a subterranean slaughterhouse. In a letter he later wrote to his family, Vonnegut described the unsanitary conditions, sadistic guards, and measly food rations. After surviving the February 1945 Allied bombing of Dresden, in which tens of thousands of people were killed, Vonnegut was forced by his captors to remove jewelry from the corpses before cremating them. 130,000 corpses were hidden underground. It was a terribly elaborate Easter egg hunt, he said in his Paris Review interview. Later in 1945, Vonnegut got frostbite and was discharged from the army, upon which he earned a Purple Heart. Over two decades later, in 1969, Vonnegut published the best-selling novel Slaughterhouse-Five, which gave readers a fictionalized account of his wartime imprisonment. He later said that only one person benefited from the raid in Dresden, him. Quote, I got three dollars for each person killed. Imagine that. Although Slaughterhouse-Five made him a famous best-selling author, Vonnegut struggled with depression in the midst of his literary success. After getting separated in 1971, he lived alone in New York City and had trouble writing. His son was diagnosed as suffering from schizophrenia, though probably was just bipolar disorder as schizophrenia was a catch-all diagnosis at the time. And although Kurt Vonnegut married his second wife in 1979 and they adopted a daughter together, his depression worsened. In 1984, he tried to kill himself by overdosing on sleeping pills and alcohol, an experience he wrote about in 1991 in Fate's Worse Than Death, a collection of essays. In a macabre connection, his mother successfully committed suicide on Mother's Day in 1944. Located in his birthplace of Indianapolis, Indiana, the Kurt Vonnegut Museum and Library honors the writer's achievements and keeps his legacy alive. Opened in 2010, the library displays signed copies of Vonnegut's books as well as early rejection letters. Visitors can also see his drawings, examine family photos, 
and view his typewriter, cigarettes, and Purple Heart. The library works to fight censorship, a cause that Vonnegut strongly believed in, by giving people free copies of Slaughterhouse-Five, uh, especially to students whose schools have banned the book. So it goes. After repeated and failed attempts to start his Dresden book, Vonnegut finally began what would become Slaughterhouse-Five during a two-year teaching stint at the University of Iowa Writers' Workshop. He had stopped writing fiction and was in a considerable funk when he accepted the invitation offered by his former editor, George Starbuck, who was a full-time professor of English at the university. Published on March 31, 1969, Slaughterhouse-Five became an instant and surprise hit. It spent 16 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list and went through five printings by July. Slaughterhouse-Five was banned from Oakland County, Michigan public schools in 1972. The circuit judge there accused the novel of being, quote, depraved, immoral, psychotic, vulgar, and anti-Christian. All hail Satan. In 1973, a school board in North Dakota immolated 32 copies of the book in the high school's coal burner. My books are being thrown out of school libraries all over the country because they're supposedly obscene, Vonnegut told the Paris Review. I've seen letters to small-town newspapers that put Slaughterhouse-Five in the same class with Deep Throat and Hustler magazine. How could anybody masturbate to Slaughterhouse-Five? Eh, people will find a way, I guess. In 2011, Wesley Scroggins, then an assistant professor at Missouri State University, called on the Republic, Missouri School Board, to ban Vonnegut's novel. He wrote in the local paper, quote, This is a book that contains so much profane language, it would make a sailor blush with shame. The F-word is plastered on almost every other page. The content ranges from naked men and women in cages together so that others can watch them having sex to God telling people that they better not mess with his loser bum of a son named Jesus Christ. The board eventually voted four to nothing to remove the novel from the high school curriculum and its library. In response to this ban, the Kurt Vonnegut Memorial Library in Indianapolis gave away 150 free copies of Slaughterhouse-Five to Republic, Missouri, students who wanted to read it, which is a pretty badass response if you ask me. The American Library Association listed the book as the 46th most banned or challenged book of the first decade of the 21st century. Noah and I met up before the Firkin Tavern comedy open mic to discuss the novel before hitting the stage there, so without further time slipping, let's get into it. Darmok and Jalad at Tanagra. So Kath, his eyes uncovered, the river Tamok. In winter, Billy Pilgrim had become unstuck in time. Kurt Vonnegut died in 2007, so it goes. This is a few years after my high school English teacher, Tess Barnes Dunn, had recommended the book Slaughterhouse-Five to me, Noah Linsk. Back then, the current edition of Vonnegut books all had this big stylized V on the front for Vonnegut. The V also resembled a Roman numeral, funf. Five, like the number on the slaughterhouse. The edition recent I read, the modern one, the current, current one, is a plain red book with a skull and crossbones on the cover. They started putting these out right when Vonnegut passed away. I like these editions, but I like the old ones better. So it goes. 
Now I have a copy of Breakfast of Champions in the old style. A former co-worker called Audrey gave it to me. The V doesn't fold into the name in the same way. One could try Breakfast of Champions, but I think it's clearly better not to. This is how Kurt Vonnegut described the Tralfamadorian way of telling stories. There isn't any particular relationship between the messages, except that the author has chosen them carefully so that, when seen all at once, they produce an image of life that is beautiful and surprising and deep. There is no beginning, no middle, no end, no suspense, no moral, no causes, no effects. What we love in our books are the depths of many marvelous moments seen all at one time. Slaughterhouse-Five is a wonderful book to start off a series examining science fiction books because it is told in the Tralfamadorian way. It is a difficult novel to discuss well because it is more of an experience than it is a story. It invites you into Billy Pilgrim's brain, into a Tralfamadorian conception of time. This is a picture of an asshole. Indeed it is. Between February 13th and 15th, 1945, the British and American Air Forces firebombed Dresden, Germany. The bombing is still controversial today. It's not clear what, if anything, the objective of the bombing was, but something like 25,000 civilians died. Kurt Vonnegut was there, held as a prisoner of war, 60 feet underground in a converted slaughterhouse. When he got back from the war, Vonnegut worked as a journalist and a technical writer before, in 1951, diving headlong into an 18-year struggling writer period, producing several volumes worth of short stories and five novels. Of the novels, I feel the need to shout out Sirens of Titan, 1959, for featuring a species of aliens called Tralfamadorians, but bearing no relationship whatsoever to the Tralfamadorians of Slaughterhouse-Five. The first chapter of Slaughterhouse-Five is told from Vonnegut's perspective in this period. He knows he wants to write a book about his experiences as a prisoner of war, but he doesn't know how to tell the story. He goes to the house of an old army buddy, Bernard V. O'Hare, and has a conversation with the friend's wife about how she doesn't like war fiction which glamorizes wars in which children, like her own children, die senselessly. Slaughterhouse-Five was released in 1969, so it was written in the early years of the American involvement in Vietnam. Vonnegut promises Mrs. O'Hare that his story will not glamorize war and gives the book its subtitle, The Children's Crusade, A Duty Dance with Death. The second chapter begins the story of Billy Pilgrim. The story is nonlinear and begins by synopsizing itself. Billy is a dopey teenager drafted to fight in World War II. He is quickly captured and then spends most of the war as a POW. After the war, he experiences a brief nervous collapse, then becomes an optometrist, gets married, has kids, and becomes a rich old man. Following a head injury and a plane crash and the death of his wife, Billy retires and begins talking about his experiences traveling in time and being abducted by aliens. From here, the story bounces between scenes of his experience as a POW, based on Vonnegut's own, interspersed with other scenes from Pilgrim's life, and his time abducted into an alien zoo, where he is mated with adult film star Montana Wildhack. The Tralfamadorians explain their nonlinear perspective of time to Billy. The Tralfamadorians see all of time at once in a way that rules out free will. Saying that people have no control over events, the Tralfamadorians recommend that Billy spend his attention thinking of happy moments as the Tralfamadorians. Amadorians do. Billy, rather, lives his life thinking constantly about the war and Dresden, flashing back to show his story bit by bit, even as the reader already knows how it's going to end. How you doing, Reese? Hey, I'm doing great, Noah. Hey, uh, well, we're on the book report. We're on the book report. We're on the book report now, baby. And okay, thanks I am for having super, me on the book yeah, Thanks I'm... for helping me film the book report or whatever. Not film it. What do you call this thing? This is an audio recording. This is an audio recording. Interesting. So it's just sound. I'm going to put you at 12% too high for this. 
No, I'm doing well. Are you kidding? I'm crushing this. No, you're doing great. I'm doing great. This is going so well. This, this is going, going great. so well. High five us. High five us. Fantastic. High Slaughterhouse Five Us. High Slaughterhouse Five Us. I'm very excited to talk about this book. Thank you for recommending it. Yeah. yeah. It's the first time that I've read it, and it is a fucker. Yeah, so I guess as I write this, mm-hmm. there are squirrels fucking outside my window. Now we've made eye contact. I'm glad everyone seems to be having a good spring. I read the book across a couple of days, but most of it I read on the Orange Line, traveling between my house in Milwaukee and the Haymaker Mike in North Portland, which normally takes an hour. I was unstuck in time for most of the experience. I was in high school, reading the book for the first time. I am having a conversation with Pedro Andrade now at the Haymaker Mike about Slaughterhouse-Five. He read it in high school, too, which is probably the right time to read the book. I'm handing Reese a red book with a skull and crossbones on the cover before the Kelly's Olympian Mike. The Sunday one, not the Thursday one. Temba is arms wide. Reese is already out the door. Busy, busy, busy is what we Bokanonists whisper whenever we think how complicated and unpredictable the machinery of life really is. On my way home after the mic, there was a disruption of some kind having to do with an event. I had to get off the train and read by a light at the train station. Chris Hudson showed up at some point, himself being inconvenienced by the same fluke of public transportation. Eventually, I was forced to put the book away and pay attention to my surroundings to get home. Still, reading while driving would have been worse. I am recording a podcast with Reese Hendrick. Fantastic. Excellent stuff. You will agree that, like, it's strange. The book, it has a, it has a, a sort of an anti-suspense. Well, there's the first chapter is just Vonnegut talking from his own perspective. Yes. But very immediately, I mean, the, the crux of the book is the bombing of Dresden, and you're told before the narrative even begins that that's... Yeah, that, that, that that's what's going on, and yeah. that is what the climax will entail. Yeah, I, and but it, the way that he delivers that in its own right and its own framing through Billy Pilgrim and his story arcs, yes, is, is such a brilliant framing device. Like I, I love Vonnegut for the uniqueness of how he tells this story. Right, exactly. It's because he does interject himself. Once and again, a couple of times. Right, he shows up having a bad toilet experience at yep. one point. I believe he shares a bad toilet experience with Billy Pilgrim. Um, yeah, apparently based on a true story, um, which I believe. I think he probably had a bad toilet experience while he was a prisoner of war. In, uh, Most probably. You know, I, yeah. I would say that's likely. Um, uh, he definitely encounters the latrine after all of the Americans, and that's like the first thing they tell you when you like you know come out of a survival experience is to not eat a bunch because you're just going to fucking kill yourself. <laughs> no, no, yeah. And it's true. I mean, that's exactly what happened. And I mean, it was a war. It was this yeah. like big thing that is like insanely senseless. You know, humans operate like the reason why we have food to eat, the reason why we're able to function at all, and like the thing that we've like you know developed developed as a species is is that we have a society and we're organized and we have the same approximate thing happening to us day in and day out and we're able to more or less you know keep it intact and this was such a huge randomizing event and that's and that's sort of like you know the point of the book well dresden is the victim of the brutality of that war insofar as that when they first get there it's still like this picturesque german town absolutely and you know even though a lot of their stores have gone through when they do come across slaughterhouse five there there's still a, a bit of meat left over and what have you i mean it's yeah. not like destitute like other cities in in germany and they have the it, British people are telling them, oh, don't worry about Dresden. No one will ever bomb Dresden. And yeah. indeed, there was no good reason to bomb Dresden. And no. God. I mean, it's, it, it is. It is because Vonnegut is like at pains to even know how to tell the story because at the same time, he has this part where he's like writing about it. And people are like, well, yeah, but also like the 
Germany was doing the Holocaust at this time. And he's like, well, yeah. And do the means justify the ends? Yeah, well, kind of, kind of questioning. Yeah. Right. And then also, it's like in the whatever final summation, nobody really thinks that bombing civilians in the case of something like Dresden did bring about the end of the war sooner. I don't. I don't think that that's no. Popularly... That's that's not a commonly accepted yeah. narrative like that of the dropping of the bombs over Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Right. And even then, like the the government knows how wrong it was to fi- to have firebombed Tokyo, and that isn't brought up in the same glorified light that the dropping of the atomic bombs were. In, in so far as it's their necessity, even though Japan was set to capitulate at Potsdam, you know, like basically to all of our uh, conditions, yeah. we, we dropped the bombs because we had them and it was a show of force. I mean, it was much like Dresden. It, it, I mean, it, it wasn't necessary. It was, it had no military strategic importance really. Right. Broadly, what I would say is this is a theme of the book is that like war is like, totally senseless and there's like and that none of it is happening for a reason and that all of it is absurd the final word that vonnegut says on all of it or whatever uh he puts in the mouth of a bird because he says after all the bombing is done there's no one left for the birds to comment and what do they have to say right Pooty wee. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's such a, a dark commentary about the brutality and finality of decisions made during war and how people are reduced to figures and statistics. Right. And, you know, and I, I, so this is one thing that I wanted to, uh, I was going to bring up in Conspiracy Corner, but I guess I'll just, I guess I'll just like bring it up now because we're just living in anarchy here. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is a science fiction podcast. Mm-hmm. And this is a book that you don't find in the science fiction section of the bookstore. You find it in the literature section in the bookstore. And science fiction is awesome because science fiction can be other genres. Like, it's, it's great when you have, you know, dystopian science fiction, utopian science fiction, you science know. Science fiction horror. Science fiction. Love, yeah. love. Yeah. <laughs> love a little bit of science fiction horror. Definitely going to be doing Event Horizon for Halloween month. Okay. It's, it's fucking awesome. Am I going to be having a bad nerd card experience if I say that I'm not familiar? No, that's okay. It's yeah. a, it's not often well-known as, like, a horror... I mean, it's more well-known as a horror film, but it's it's takes uh, place in space, so it's certainly science fiction. Okay, but it's, yes. For, yeah. Yes, terrific. It's, yes. It's, a, it's about a spaceship that comes across, like, an alternate hell dimension, and it's fucking crazy. I've, I've only seen it once, and wild. I was, a, like, a boy, so I need to revisit it, and I'm definitely doing that for Halloween. So oh, I'm, my God. Yeah. Uh, right. Sam Neill, the, uh, yeah, dude, the dude from Park. Jurassic Park, yeah, okay. which is another great science fiction movie and franchise. Damn, that sounds that sounds pretty cool. Science fiction exists, and it, and it, and it sits on, like, the, the, the straddles of genres, and so, like, Neuromancer, which we just read, was science fiction noir. And mm. this is science fiction literature... But the question I wanted to ask you in the conspiracy corner is, um, are Billy Pilgrim's experiences real or are they delusions? Mm. Yeah, I, I would say that they're real because they transpired before his traumatic like injury that took place during the plane crash. Okay, okay. And his sliding through time, like he did, he, it's not like, he read a bunch of pulp fiction and science fiction and like you know uh, short stories and was heavily influenced by those. Sure, yeah. He, al- al- he, although yeah. there there was um, Kilgore Trout, Kilgore Trout, yeah. but it, but the events of his books aren't. I mean, there were some coincidences. Yes, but I don't think that they you know definitely laid out 
all of the potential if we're saying that it's all you know in his head or hallucinations or what have you then you know then yes then they were definitely sourced from something but there are things that transpire like the the movie actress montana wild yeah that she's the one that's chosen uh you know to be his partner instead of like I'm going to come around to, to agreeing with you in the end, Reese. But let me play devil's advocate okay, here. Play, because yeah, the play, argument yeah. that Billy Pilgrim is hallucinating mm-hmm. is that he uh, is introduced to science fiction books by Elliot Rosewater. Right, in who, the hospital when they're who, convalescent. Right, yeah. who is his roommate in the hospital. No, well, not in the hospital, in the psychiatric the hospital v, the when v, he's yeah, the, in the optometry hospital, school. Yeah. Oh, that's right, when he has the breakdown. That's when right. he has the breakdown... Yeah, he gets back from the After war. He gets he's, he's back been, from the war. He goes yeah. to optometry school. Yeah, he's engaged to Valencia. He, yeah. in, engaged to Valencia. He gets introduced to science fiction by Elliot Rosewater. Yeah. He uses it as a way of coping. And here is a quotation. Elliot Rosewater is the protagonist of another Vonnegut book called God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater. Hmm. And I, I did wanted, not know that. Yes, okay. and I wanted to read you uh, in that book, Rosewater drunkenly breaks into a convention of science fiction writers and <laughs> yells this speech at them. He says, I love you, sons of bitches. You're all I read anymore. You're the only ones who will talk all about the really terrific changes going on. The only ones crazy enough to know that life is a space voyage and not a short one either, but the one that'll last for billions of years, and the only ones with guts enough to really care about the future, who really notice what machines do to us, what wars do to us, what cities do to us, what big, simple ideas do to us, what tremendous misunderstanding, mistakes, accidents, catastrophes do to us. You're the only ones zany enough to agonize over time and distance without limit, over mysteries that will never die, over the fact that we are right now determining whether the space voyage for the next billion years is going to be to heaven or hell. So science fiction stories can be used to like conceptualize the big problems in the world, you know? So so then if you're making the argument uh, that it's literature, then you're arguing that he's not actually having time travel experiences, um, but that he's actually using science fiction plots from like you know these books that he that he read as a, as a coping mechanism. as a coping mechanism to help him deal with this horrible thing that he can't even look at and indeed when vonnegut writes the story and he actually gets to the moment of dresden i think there's something very profound about the way that it really isn't portrayed the people are all down in the bunker and they hear things going on above and they see the guards go out and look around and see what's going on and come back and whisper amongst each other it's not an action scene. In no sense is it the action. Is it an action story? Yeah, they're not watching the actual city go up in flames yeah. like, from a distance or something on a ridge, like with a perfect vantage point. But, but so okay. the thing itself is but, obscured. But but to, but to and, and uh, to get to yeah. your point though about whether or not Billy Pilgrim's experiences are real or imagined, right? Uh, I think that they are real because. They started transpiring before he even encountered any sort of science fiction. Well, he never started talking about it until after he got a head injury in a plane crash. Is the other part of the argument if you're trying to argue that it's. But okay, and, and here's and here's but, the, but and if, here's we, the, if and, we were to yeah. take him at his word, though, yeah. if we were to take Billy at his word, yes, that he had out of time experiences during the Second World War, then then it, then it, then it would be. If, and if we experience it as he does, then we would. But the reason why I think 
that Billy Pilgrim's experiences are real is that because if Billy Pilgrim's experiences are hallucinations, then it's a work of literature, and if Billy Pilgrim's experiences are real, then it's a work of science fiction, and it was correct for me to bring it on this podcast, and if, it's, and if his experiences are hallucinations, then I was unreasonable. So, like, mm. logically... I find that I have to actually so for the, be on the, the sake of your own presentation. For my presentation, for the purpose, the editorial position of this program is that the experiences <laughs> are real, and that anyone who says differently is a heretic. I don't only naturally agree with you, but I feel like I'm forced to agree with you at this point. Or else. I, I mean, or else. Yeah. So yes, I yeah. agree. Okay. Fantastic. Um, yeah. All no, right. we're on, we're definitely on the same page. I agree. Pilly, B- Billy Pilgrim's experiences are real. Okay. Cool. Yes. That was one of the important things that we needed to get established. So Reese, I told you that story about me reading it on the train. How'd you read the book? I read the book on a plane on trains and in automobiles. Oh my god. Yeah, I pulled a, a full-on John Candy. It's remarkable. And and read this thing. So, uh, I recently traveled with Kyle Adams to New York and Florida to do a, like a series of uh, broadcasting gigs oh, and sweet. we did a bunch of comedy shows. Oh, this was the picture of you on the roof in New York. Yes. Ah, yeah. yeah. That, no, it course, was a super yes. rad time. Right, yeah. um, and in between all of that, I had two books with me. One was the Anatomy of Motive uh, by the Mindhunter yeah. guy, and the other one was your copy of Slaughterhouse Five. And on my way back, I had a bunch of airplane time and transit train time, so was totally in, in you know involved in it. I read it in a day. Yeah, transit is such a good time yeah. to read in yeah, general. Absolutely. It's so wonderful. It's oh my god. Yeah, I, just, I couldn't agree yeah. more. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's really what it's there for. No, absolutely, and it's so much better than like being on your phone and like watching your battery drain while you play a game that makes you hate yourself. Yes, and like yeah, yeah. Um, and this one's kind of a mind fuck, right? <laughs> oh, oh yeah, it's it's definitely engaging. Yeah, you know, like like sometimes if the subject matter is super involved or you know like I've glossed over earlier parts of a story and then all of a sudden those elements are super important to the plot arc and like I had to go back and read it wasn't necessarily the case with this and for how unique the you know storytelling devices are and how it goes back and forth and how you do have to know about previous parts out of time oh yeah like, it would be it, hard to come back to it, after a ways after a while away it was a good thing yeah. to read in no. one felt swoop no, so it was point, it yeah. was definitely it's definitely uh and it's kind of easy to do like if you wanted if you were bored on a weekend day yeah. oh yeah you could definitely finish this book in yeah. a day it's a couple um, of hours i read cat's cradle another vonnegut book in one sitting one time nice yeah <laughs> this book in particular was it was such a great flow that i never felt like i had to be like okay wait what what happened there again right even though it was it's such out there content like time slipping and yeah existing in multiple dimensions and like the way that the Trefalmadorians uh, perceive us. You mean like the thing where like you're like on a track and you have like a pipe welded to your head and you're yeah. looking out of it, right? Yeah, and, uh, yeah, and just like the the physica- the way that our physicality is perceived by them and our com- perceptions of corporeality and time, like it, it was. It, it, that, then I had to reread a couple of times because I was just like, wow, that's a head trip just yeah. to just to imagine it, and, and that's what I like about Vonnegut. 
I, I like the way that he makes all of these different characters and the insights that he brings to their perspectives and, you know, kind of like the finality of life, but also the banality of it. And, he, you know, and so it goes. Yeah, no. I, yeah. And, and so it goes. Yeah, absolutely. Like the it's the collection of images that are just like pulled from other places to create an image of grappling with this thing that's like you know horrible at a way totally out of proportion to human reality and like yeah no yeah. It, it's it's supposed to be foreign and to have to live in you know the conditions that were being portrayed i mean i was trying to put my because i've been cold but not to the point where like i was wearing shoes that are falling off of my feet and i'm mm -hmm. now walking miles and miles on bare feet and ice like that's not something that i've ever had to experience right well, I, I really identified with the bum on the train. That he sees a bum on the train who keeps going like, "Oh, this ain't bad." Oh, you, been, don't, you don't know what bad is. <laughs> I've been in worse places than this. Yeah. And then the bum dies. Like and it's, dying, it's, he dies <laughs> saying that. His, worst, yeah. his last words are. Like, uh, yeah, I've had worse. <laughs> it's like, all right, buddy. Well, that's that's my vibe. I'm um. <laughs> <laughs> oh shit. Uh, so, Reese, who do you think this book is for? I would say this book is is for anybody who is kind of like they, they don't necessarily like hard science fiction that they want something that introduces a science fiction element but isn't overtly something like the fifth element you know, or right. just like or yeah. you know, just something that's super in your face um you know even though it does involve transgalactic or transdimensional aliens like, yeah yeah, it, it, but it, it, it feels a little them, bit softballed in. Yeah, it's, right, and it uses them as a way of express of, of examining something very, very human. And, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah. I, I think yeah. it's you know it, it would also be interesting to somebody who is you know kind of flirting with science fiction but likes more historical novels. I mean, you know, like it does follow World War Two, and right. there yeah. are elements of it that that did actually transpire, and and it talks about stuff in World War Two that isn't the stuff that we think about we think about uh d-day and we think about you know drop dropping the bomb on hiroshima to a le to a lesser extent and yeah and, we don't think and, about well and yeah. vonnegut's intro speaks to that a, like a, a lot because yeah. he's, you know people were like you're gonna write a book about dr the dresden firebombing like what do you do like yeah don't you want to make money on this book like right and, and <clears throat> that leads up to say like okay this is something that's important to me and regardless of its popularity that's what this book's going to be about and then here's this framing device insofar as, like, Billy Pilgrim is like, okay, well, you may not like what I have to say, but he always says it in such a matter-of-fact kind of way. Like, he never shies away of talking about his experiences, or at least once he starts talking about them. Right. Well, yeah. and it's very, and it's very like it's it's not light. I was about to say it's light. It's light. It's the opposite of light. It's very dark, but it's very humorous, and it's very oh, yeah. like it gives you humor very regularly throughout. Like constantly, there are just like jokes, and it and it just keeps it fun and interesting. And well, just like yeah. how he nonchalantly slips through time. Like you know, yeah. he he's never necessarily had an adverse reaction, and just the way that he talks about it, he's just like, eh, I mean, it is what it is. His experiences being like multiple, because when he goes back to earth time it's milliseconds you have transpired right right yeah as, as opposed to the x amount of time that happens on tremelfador right and then i mean there is also like there is the version of that where he goes to the bathroom in the night he like gets out of bed 
and he goes to the bathroom and he becomes unstuck in time and he's living some portion of like the the prisoner of war camp i think and then he's like you know back in his bedroom and he like you know he like finishes peeing and he goes to bed and his wife is like oh i missed you like you've only been gone for yeah like right. yeah it's this experience and even i mean like it's the process of becoming unstuck in time and of seeing all of these things first of all happen separately from the Tralfamadorians and it is it is about like um i don't know he is going on like a wild psychic voyage and stuff and i would yeah. love to see the movie version of this i, I think that there like, is one i haven't seen it oh what, like, when was it produced uh a long time ago quite a while ago yeah i'd like to see a reboot of it in so in so far as like the ability with editing and cgi that we can do today i think that it'd be a super awesome vehicle for someone like Ewan McGregor playing Billy Pilgrim. You know, so this is the thing for me, is like something like this, I'm always like, how, like so much of it is driven by the narrator, you know, and I'm yeah. like, how how could you make something like that uh, into a movie? But also like, on the other hand, like there are good movies made off of books all the time and like, you know, like... With, with a narrator or like a, right. well, you could do a it with grand... A, yeah, you would uh, need to figure out some way of doing it but that's probably why i won't they probably won't put me in charge of that project because i don't have an idea of how to accomplish it yeah yeah i mean <laughs> i i would just stay true to the book i would put i would just start it off with a vonnegut type character breaking the fourth wall yeah talking with you and cheekily being involved in scenes that are then framed through the uh -huh. telling of the billy pilgrim story where yeah he, because he does interject himself and you know like when he's making drunken phone calls to old friends one of them is to billy pilgrim at one point isn't it oh and i, I don't even recall yeah. um but you i mean um yeah it's just an easter egg kind of reconnection that yeah. vonnegut is the narrator or at least right. from his perspective like and he says you know like these are all events that transpired and like i've changed the names of these people to protect their anonymity or what have you right I think they're just straight up following the framing of the book would make for a great movie. Yeah. Well, and and so I know there is a movie. I know that Vonnegut said that he liked the movie. Okay. So I'll it, have to check it yeah, out. Yeah, it can't have been bad. Um, I didn't go to the effort of tracking it down, um, but I'm sure that it's available because the internet is the internet. Um, yeah, I did actually, you reminded me of one thing I wanted to say, which is when he's at the party and people are saying to him like, you're going to make an anti-war book, you might as well make an anti-glacier book. Right. Meaning that, like, wars like glaciers will be around forever. But, in fact, the anti-glacier movement has really pulled some stuff really off. off. Yeah, like, this came out in 1969, and it has, man, just been... Oof. I'm not anti-glacier. I'm pro-glacier. Or I'm, I'm glacier. I would consider myself a glacier moderate. I like there to be glaciers, but not everywhere. Um, but I got to say, like, the anti-glacier movement, man, they have had a productive... Uh, 50 years. Man, oh man. So it, it looks like the movie was made in 1972. It has an 82 on Rotten Tomatoes. That's good. That's pretty damn That's pretty good. good. But it's it's uh, from his home in Ilium, New York, optometrist Billy Pilgrim, played by Michael Sachs, narrates the tale of how he came to be, quote, unstuck in time. Okay. So they just skip the Vonnegut framing yeah. and go straight to from Billy's perspective. Yeah. But again, I would love to see it 
Yeah. Just follow the framing of the book. I mean, yeah. it's it's a great uh, no, story absolutely. device. And this is another thing that he talks about is uh, in that first chapter where he's talking about like agonizing over how to tell the story well. He has his friends who he goes to his house. The wife of the friend is saying like, "You're gonna write it like an action movie, and there will be roles for Marlon heroes, Brando or right. whatever." Yeah, exactly. And he says, "Well, yeah." And he says, "I'm gonna call it the Children's Crusade," although. On the other hand, I didn't see 1914, but I saw the trailers for it, and they had children in that. It was a young, yeah. modern war movie that had, like, children. They were very young-looking actors. I've not seen that. World War One is a whole nother monster. I haven't seen any of these. I don't know how much you need to know about this stuff but i mean like i think that i think that wars are fought by children for the most part like uh yeah i would say historically uh the the ratio of the amount of children that participate in warfare to to the amount that should be zero it feels is, like is, zero would be is, better yeah zero would be better yeah uh, you know yeah yeah I, 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 we can take that official stance Perfectly too. Perfectly, the official editorial position of of the book report <laughs> is we no more child soldiers. Yeah, that's, we're, that's we're, our hot take. We're willing to go there. We're willing to uh, we're willing to get canceled over this uh, highly controversial opinion. Yeah, anti-child soldier. I I will die on that hill. Get woke. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Get woke, son. <laughs> Well, again, Noah, thank you so yeah, much for. On that note. Yeah, on that note, uh, thank you so much for introducing this book to. I'm, I'm definitely going to read more Vonnegut, and uh, that was an excellent book report. Yeah. All right. Fantastic. Thank you, man. I uh, really appreciate coming on here and doing this, and I really look forward to doing um, the Illustrated Man. Short stories are going to be fun to figure out how to talk about we're gonna have to section it out or something we'll figure it out we're smart people yeah we'll do yeah. like a top five we'll do a top five we'll do a top five that's a good okay. idea we'll see if All our right. top fives match oh that's i adore that idea nice. all right fantastic okay. very cool all right all right well until next time until next sir. time fantastic live fantastic. long and prosper indeed oh. peace and long life my friend <laughs> Always fun meeting up with Noah to talk sci-fi. Before we move on, I'd like to acknowledge the sources for today's facts, which are mainly Wikipedia and mentalfloss.com. For the next chapter of the book report, Noah and I take a dive into one of my favorite collections of short stories by one of my favorite sci-fi authors. That would be The Illustrated Man by Ray Bradbury. Most people know him for Fahrenheit 451 and The Martian Chronicles, another great collection of stories, but The Illustrated Man contains some of the best sci-fi short stories ever written, and I'm stoked to get into that with Noah for the next chapter of The Book Report. Until then, I encourage you to pick up a book and take a trip into the world that exists there within. You may find something you didn't even know you were looking for.